On this episode of Charged Up Conversations, we are going to talk about finance, both business and personal. I have with me Alicia Maji, the co-founder of Altruism. What does she do? Well, she works every day to help Canadians make smarter financial decisions. She works with a lot of entrepreneurs and business owners, and I would venture to say that it is her niche client base. We also have my partner, Alicia Olandeska, co-founder of SOS Charging Solutions and SOS Web AR. She is also the principal at Creekside Fraction CFO and works as a part-time CFO for a number of other startups and small businesses. The two Alicias will interview each other and hopefully pack this episode full of value for you. Do we have to code each other, Alicia A, Alicia B, Alicia M, Alicia O? We can do, well, yeah, we can do Alicia O, Alicia M. Okay, that Alicia might be good. M. Um, tell me a bit more about yourself, about altruism and how you got into this world of finance. Yeah, for sure. So I have worked in the wealth management industry for the past 10 years and that's like on the side of investing money um, and taking care of clients for whom money is invested and around as we were working in there my um, co-founder and I we just found it really difficult as people in their 20s to see how we could be really helpful to and like Canadians who can afford to have access to advisors who can pay the fees or who can have enough to invest to actually have a money person that they can go to for their big money questions. And as you go through life, you have a lot of those. And so we would kind of learn a lot about how they were being helped. And we also found it really frustrating that our friends couldn't access that, for example, or even we wouldn't have access were we not already working in it. And it just seemed really unfair. Mm -hmm. And especially because if you think about it, those with less to invest or earlier stage in their lives where they don't have that yet, probably need more help they're making decisions that will have longer term impacts like that's probably the time you want to intervene if you care about financial health but it was difficult the industry just wasn't structured for that and so we had been creating a lot of content for the help of the clients that we were serving and then we thought it would be really cool to find a way to publish it to put it online and um, we eventually created altruism with that in around 2019 And um, it's just an online subscription-based platform, at least that's how it started. And it has basically, basically you come on, you choose your different life events that you're going through, and it asks you a little bit about yourself. And then from there, it gives you a bunch of checklists and kind of tasks to get done that it recommends and documents to find, get organized, benefits you can apply for, um, case studies that you can read and kind of learn from other people that have gone through similar things. And it just was the kind of stuff that we wish we could have easily given to our clients at the time. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and it's all like very case-based and learned from cases. So it's like real life stories all the time. Yeah. Yeah, and then from uh, from there, just after the pandemic, we found there was a lot more interest in like having the platform, but then having a human to talk to behind that and to just kind of double check things and especially just having an independent platform. So it's completely independent. We don't sell any product. We don't get kickbacks or refer out to anyone specifically for a financial reason. Um, So it's kind of a nice place you can go to for a second opinion or like to have someone to kind of walk alongside you as you're getting your first mortgage, buying your first home, getting married, merging finances, maybe even like accepting job positions and knowing like which one to take, things like that. Oh, wow. That's a lot of detail. Consulting, well, not consulting, but helping out as much as I could in that regard. Um, And from there, because I enjoyed it so much, I thought, um, why not go for it? I had wanted to be a fractional CFO, 
for quite a while. I thought you had to kind of be in your 40s or have more than one business under your belt, um, potentially have a CPA. And I just thought, you know what, it's 2020, it's COVID, I'm just going to go for it. So I started the business um, and I work at a part-time. And what does a fractional CFO do? It's a part-time CFO. So it does, a fractional CFO will do all the things that a regular CFO does, um, uh, but on a part-time basis. Because unless you're a very large company, uh, you don't necessarily need someone doing that all the time, mm-hmm. eight hours a day. Um, and that's where I step in. So um, the role really has come down to a, a, very, a very simple process of discovery and analysis and then from there projecting um, and meeting and then asking the, the business owner what are your goals and what are your aspirations for this business or for yourself mm-hmm. and building strategies around getting there. So sometimes that's paying down debt, sometimes that's getting more debt, sometimes that's increasing salary, hiring new staff. Um, it can be a lot of, um, you know, fundraising, um, changing the cap table. There's a number of things that founders need support with, and any one of those things I, I can help with. So that's what I that's what I do. That's incredible. I think it made me realize in your description that I am really passionate about working with people on an individual basis with their money, and you basically do that same kind of coaching, but for a business. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so cool. I can imagine a lot of founders are grateful for that kind of help. Uh, the first question that I wanted to ask you, so I, th- I think I'll outline the premise of the podcast is we're going to interview each other from personal finance perspective, corporate finance perce- perspective, and answer a series of questions that are hopefully meaningful to the audience. So question number one, and I'll ask you first, what is your money routine and how has that helped you navigate the financial ups and downs of this pandemic? Awesome. So I think... Um as a founder, money routine, and as a human, mm-hmm. money routines are really important. It's something that in altruism we um, preach about and we really try to instill with everyone that we work with. And the I'll just give a little bit of background before then I answer. But um, the, the idea is that if you don't have an intentional money routine, you're going to have one anyways that just is an accidental one. Mm-hmm. So somebody may be intentional by saying, I'm going to look at my accounts, I'm going to do certain analysis on, on, you know, my profitability in a business, for example, or all these things, um, how much I spend in which categories am I meeting my goals? You could do that weekly or daily or monthly. And that could be an intentional routine, mm-hmm. or you could be somebody who's not looking at any of those things for a variety of reasons. And either way, money is still coming in. Money is still going out. Money is still reaching or not reaching the goals you have. Mm-hmm. And so, um, it's really helpful to have something that's a bit more intentional. I find it's helpful to start small, What I do is I have a budget that is relatively straightforward month to month, so I no longer look at each detail of it, but I keep specific lists and specific kind of target amounts I spend on certain key areas, right, based on where I think I might be liable to overspend. So for example, I, like if I love shopping, then I'll say, look, if I, if I don't set a limit on that, I'll find myself just at the mall all the time or, and just like picking something up for the sake of it. And if I know that's a weak area for me, then I can say, I'll put a certain amount on there. And sometimes in my case, I also put a time amount. Like I say, I don't want to be shopping for clothes more than twice a month. It's just like not the best use of my time, even though it's fun. And so by doing that, it's kind of like both a time and a money budget, but I, I keep that in mind. And I just write down my purchases. I see where I stack up against that goal for that month. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have like pretty strict rules 
rules. Like if some, if I get something and it goes over, I have to sell something else or get rid of it or whatever. Um, but I follow those same with like eating out in our family. We do that. Um, just because it's areas where when you're busy and you're stressed, you could easily go overboard on them. Yeah, exactly. And we'd rather just, just yeah, go for what's easiest. Mm -hmm. And so I'd rather just know, um, often for the clients I work with, there's things similar things around like groceries. Like rarely do I see people coming in where, the, where they're just spending in astronomical ways for no reason on, on really frivolous things. It's usually just we're busy. It's hard to go to three different grocery stores and get things on sale and it seems daunting. And so mm -hmm. they end up spending way more than they realize on food every week or um, on care, like daycare, things like that. And so building a money routine can include monitoring that, checking in so things don't get out of hand creating rules of thumb so um i used to give people like a really simple rule of thumb would be something like if they want to cut back how much they're spending on groceries i'll say okay what's the amount we can handle monthly that would still help you reach your goals and then what like how do i cut that into four so you know what you're spending oh, weekly yeah. or if you know you go to the grocery store twice a week like what should you be spending roughly each time and then just like write it down or put it into your budget or whatever and check in to see how you're how you're doing on that text your spouse about it or something so you right. have a, a written record something really easy for them to implement um we start at that simply right. and then it builds into something like where what where your goals at what you want to achieve are you investing are you saving are you um investing in yourself yeah uh, things like that so interesting yeah on the i do something similar um on the corporate side so where i advise people to start and where my money routine started or my self-education and corporate finance started was I would do cash flow every week. So every Monday before I started my week, I would list out, um, add up everything that was coming in in the next month. Mm -hmm. And I would add up, subtract everything that was going out. And obviously if there was a deficit, that was bad. If there was an extra amount, that was great. Um, and from there, that just understanding what was coming and what was going was the very first step. And then when I got a bit more savvy in the early days taking a look at the um, profit and loss statement with that at least monthly and dividing up how much of our budget of what was coming and going was allocated across the goods sold and mm -hmm. operating expenses and from there really we could compare that to anything so we could say like you know how much are we spending on marketing compared to other companies you can mm -hmm. google that information really easily so that's where i advise people to start that's my money routine mm -hmm. and that really helped me um i guess the second part of this um question the ups and downs of the pandemic um if we know how much is coming in and how much is going out we can plan for the deficit mm -hmm. so we knew i we were we had a we were laughing we had um a certain benefit had come in for our industry that we were able to take advantage of and I had kind of plotted out three situations like if we if if we get this benefit will last till I don't know I think it was like the end of July and it was um you know that'll hold us over and it, and it literally came down within days of just and that was all just knowing what was coming and what was mm -hmm. going and making plans around that so um I guess that's just knowledge base if you know if you're if you're willing to look and I think a lot of people um sometimes are too scared to look or they have reasons why they would rather not look um the lack of knowing is is where people get in trouble because even mm -hmm. if even if things are bad within your business or in your home if you're willing to look then you can start making a plan around it um, exactly it's yeah. often and it can like feel really scary to say oh I'm over or 
by next month. Like sometimes you don't want to look because you're thinking, I don't want to know for sure that by next month I'm out of luck if yeah. I don't find something. Yeah. And so it's easier to avoid. And that actually takes us into our next question, which is, oh, yeah, yeah, about like money stories and how they affect our financial decisions, especially when a business goes through an unexpected rough patch. So um, I know you kind of explained yours and I thought of just even just reviewing how different because sometimes it sounds really kind of hocus pocus like what is this money story does it really like at the end of the day money is numbers it's Mm -hmm. what's coming in what's going out like how much is it really affecting it but I think like your situation is really interesting because you had a situation where you you know the worst case scenario happened to your business you Mm -hmm. suddenly are in a situation where you may actually make zero dollars which is pretty rare for businesses to go (laughs) from like you'll have a dip and you'll have a high but it's rare to go from like successful to zero so um so that's really scary that is like a worst case scenario and because your past and for the audience you know alicia and i have had this conversation before but because your past had kind of shown um the importance of knowing what's happening with your money knowing how much you have knowing your numbers like just being intimately involved in all of that daily having this routine where you check every monday you were able to you were more prepared and more like able to be responsive to like okay this benefit will get me here this was what i'm going to try and it's going to bring this much in and kind of breaking it down and seeing how you can attack it versus an avoidant would just say like, oh, either like just give up or just switch to something else yeah. or like just fear it and have a, and not be able to pivot their business at the end of the day. We, I had a whole, a whole lot of fear. My money narrative, um, not that it was explicitly ever told to me that we didn't have enough, um, but I, my money narrative is always lack. So I always view money as a pool and the pool could get bigger and it could get smaller and it could dry up completely. Mm-hmm. And I never viewed money as, the, the way I view it now is a river, so it's it's always flowing, and sometimes it's a trickle, and sometimes it's a it's a huge wave, um, and that really served me it, in a limited way in the beginning. It allowed me to be frugal enough. It allowed me to be nervous enough to track and to face the money because I had to. I had I viewed it as a pool, and it could not dry up, so I had to know um, because that was a very real fear, and that really helped us in the beginning. And then when the pandemic hit, even though my mindset around money had changed those skills came back and it wasn't mm-hmm. scary like you said I had practice to look at it even when it wasn't pretty so it really served us well in that regard but um, having a negative money story I would also say um, held me back from having a um, as much of a growth mindset as I would have liked so yeah. um, but on the personal side and you can speak this a bit more um, having a this more negative money um, narrative made me a saver so that also very much came in handy when the pandemic hit is that um we had been saving a bit so Mm -hmm. it wasn't the end it was not easy by any stretch (laughs) there were tears and frustration and all that stuff but um that frugal mindset definitely came into play but what did you see and and your own money story how did that Mm -hmm. how does that impact your business when it goes through a rough patch i think i totally agree with you like as in, I think I had a similar situation or view of money. And so for altruism, we didn't necessarily have a rough patch where it was like income going up or down, but I think it definitely affected our growth mindset. I think in my situation, it was scary to think that I would try something big and it would fail. And Mm -hmm. so instead I would kind of try tiny things and then like try to experience a little success and that's great, but it's still small. And it's funny because altruism is sort of considered fintech although I don't really think of it as a fintech per se like it doesn't have a lot of the same traits but it is in that category and so 
our peers in that industry are just like trying to like expand their number of users really quickly and grow ex- extremely quickly and yeah. get a ton of funding really fast and like that's all really great but it just never felt natural to me and I'm sure. and I remember speaking to somebody who was a bit of a mentor and who also had a startup and I said like you know it's just crazy like these people just get money from VCs and their businesses aren't even profitable and right. like why would why does that happen and that's cr- that, that's just crazy to me like n- not only can I not see doing myself doing it I don't even understand it and mm-hmm. And he was explaining how in his own business, because he kind of had a similar background too, and he said, I used to think it's so important to be profitable, but actually this startup world is more of a game and it's not about profitability, it's about growth. And so these VCs don't care so much how much like you're bringing in at the end of each month versus your costs, they care how quickly you're growing. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't necessarily make sense. We've seen p- plenty of stories where people have grown really fast and then when it comes time to you know, turn it into something profitable, it just doesn't, it isn't there. Right. Um, but regardless that it's like about getting to the next step and the next exit and the next round of funding. And so that's, I think like when we talk about growth versus hunker down, like I think I'm much more of a hunker down person and that maybe isn't, um, something that's celebrated in the startup community. But I also think like if we just don't think about those labels and to me, it feels much more natural for how I would grow business. Yeah. And so I get that. And I think, um, I'm not not saying it's the right thing, but it's, I think it's helpful. Like, I think knowing that and having that in the back of your mind that I can survive on very little is good. And then I think like what would probably be helpful for me or what I've seen helpful for um, members we work with is bringing someone on who thinks completely differently than that so that they can kind of push you in the area and like be more visionary and say like, why can't you go for this? Why can't you like why are you aiming for a thousand users? You should be aiming for 100,000 users or whatever. And like, why is that? If, if this lever works for a thousand, it should equally work for a hundred thousand. So just like not being so afraid of those realizations. That's, that's so funny that you say that because when I've mentored and coached and with my clients too, I advise fill in the gaps where you can. So if you know that you're a hunker or downer mm-hmm. um, and that you're frugal to pair with somebody who is very visionary and will push the boundaries and push you into uncomfortable to feeling the discomfort mm-hmm. that, that growth brings that's super important and I honestly think that's one reason why Joel and I've made it so far is because he's I don't like the gas break analogy but he is very much gas and up until very recently I was very much break so um now it's more like this is what I want to accomplish and I come with well how do we how are we gonna mm-hmm. strategize to make to meet that instead of just like no or yeah. not yet or whatnot but you need to have that balance and if you can't find it within your founding team to find like a mentor mm-hmm. advisor friend coach somebody that will push you in those ways is super important or else you're gonna let your money narrative kind of run your business and mm-hmm. it's not necessarily the best thing I, I remember learning I don't know I can't remember how long we were maybe four years in uh, somebody told me that because um, I was very proud of being profitable mm-hmm. and somebody was uh, kind of disabuse me of that notion that you know at home if you have leftover money that's good Um, but in business that's not necessarily always Mm -hmm. the case and it was so strange to me that business and corporate finance could be completely different than personal finance when they played so intimately together I know I'm debt averse personally um, but I was actually advised that it was a sign of immaturity and fear that I Mm -hmm. was not willing to look at um, external funding sources yeah. I was like, oh, okay then. So those are very interesting learnings for me. Um, 
I actually had a similar situation where I was at this like mentor speed dating thing where you just like speak to lots of people there to answer your questions and kind of give guidance. And one guy had asked me, he's like, because our standard line was, oh, we're not looking for funding yet. We want to like confirm our product market fit, which to me made perfect sense. Like, why would I take your money if I don't even know what I'm doing is working? Um, So I thought it was like a great thing to say. And then he was like, well, that's like kind of a letdown. And are you just trying to be a lifestyle business? Like, do you want to just do this? Just you. And I mean, I didn't even know what he meant at the time, but I kind of had to think about it and basically just like keeping it small, keeping it something that kind of pays just my bills and, and do that until I'm done. Um, and at first I was so insulted. I was just thinking like, God, how that's horrible. I've been thinking about this all wrong. And then I kind of went through a phase where I'm like, well, what's so wrong with a lifestyle business? Like I'm making money. I'm supporting my family when I have one. And, and you know, I like what I'm doing and who wants to manage like a hundred employees when I just have to manage myself. Like, I don't know. I'm still feeding myself and putting, I don't know. It just doesn't seem that bad. But the point I think he was trying to make is that like, don't, don't put yourself in a situation where you're talking about wanting to grow if you don't really want to grow. Yes. I would agree. And I think that's something that like I had to grapple with a lot. I think I still do. Yeah. Um, and I notice myself going back to those patterns all the time where I just, it's safer and easier and more comfortable to just stay small. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. And the one thing that I, I think this question is taking up the entire podcast, but, mm-hmm. um, one thing I've learned recently and through the pandemic is staying small feels more comfortable, but when you get big and you, um, and you, the more people you help, the, the, then the more people you'll help. That's exactly what I was trying to say. Mm-hmm. Um, staying small, you help fewer people, and then there's no purpose behind what you're doing, even though it's comfortable. So, um, you know, it's not even about being brave. It's about when you decide to get big on purpose. It's about um, being brave enough to help as many people as, pro- as, as possible. So if you're solving somebody's problem, it's you have an obligation to get as big as possible so you can reach as many people as possible. And I was like, well... Damn, that changes how I view almost everything. Me too. I've actually never heard that put that way, and it absolutely. I'm having like a bit of an aha moment right now. Yeah. So that's great. I'm gonna go home and write that down. Yeah. Um. So I know one thing we wanted to talk about um is the idea of like good and bad habits um for entrepreneurs, and I'm curious about like what you've seen in your time as a CFO. Mm-hmm. Um. I, I call it CEO syndrome. So the leader of an organization is so visionary, they can't bring their five-year plan or their big goal down to actionable, actionable steps for today. So what is actually going to move the dial forward for me today? That can come from a place of just thinking so big and, and having such vast goals that it's hard to rein that in. But it also, I think, comes from a place of fear that you want to do so much that um, you almost avoid the action by filling your day with meetings and um, and, and kind of all these things that aren't actually moving the dial forward. So um, that's that's a bad habit to get uh, out of the way is, is really trying to bring that vision down to actionable steps every day, every week. Like, what am I going to do today that's going to move my business forward? If you get that one thing done, then you can check email, then you can do the rest of the stuff. So mm-hmm. that's a good habit, good and bad habit. Um, around money specifically is starting to just get to know your cash flow. It doesn't have to be that you spend hours on corporate finance or anything. It's just um, looking at it, looking at your bank statement, and then figuring one thing out. I like to challenge people one thing out a month or even a quarter. So what is my gross profit margin? Mm. Just once you can figure that out, you can chart that over time and see that how it's changed up and down based on 
um, macroeconomic factors like the price of goods and stuff like that, or um, what's my net profit margin? Um, mm -hmm. How has that changed as I've grown, and how can I use that to plan? Because a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs will push the top line, thinking that they will automatically improve the bottom line, and that's not necessarily the case because it costs more money to have more clients. Um, it, it can cost more money to have more clients, so really understanding the gross and net profit margins is really mm -hmm. important because it sees, even though your sales are maybe going through the roof, um, it'll show you uh, what's happening to the money as it trickles down and why you have you know, a profit or, or lack thereof. Mm -hmm. um, so just those two margins and cash flow, those are my, like, um, the best habits to start now. Mm -hmm. And what about you, for, especially from entrepreneurs that now have to go home and look at their personal finance after they've mm -hmm. had good or bad habits at work? Yeah, so I think um, that's, first of all, a really important one, just that entrepreneurs, I feel like the conversation just isn't had enough that your personal finances really do affect your decision making. I mean... Mm -hmm there's imagine being a co-founder with somebody who is in hiding some debt mm -hmm. like obviously it's going to affect his you know his decision making um and you will not know that and then you'll wonder why you guys are making such different decisions or why like your views on priorities are so different so it has a big factor or you know if you have two co-founders one is a single person who's able to take more risk one has a family like a mm -hmm. spouse and a, maybe a child or children like what do, what do their decisions look like it's going to be different and so that's one just like I think the way you combat that is being really frank between each other, but also with your families and with yourself about your boundaries. So knowing like what you absolutely will not risk and what you are willing to risk and that limit will look different for everybody. I think um, knowing your kind of, I always call it like scenario A, B and C, but in a, in a good time, like you'll be able to live where you are and kind of um, be able to afford the things that are the nice to haves and everything. But there might be certain unexpected things like a pandemic that will come up and what does it look like to scale back for you guys? And have you had that conversation in advance? Like I, I see founders where they're like, Oh, you know, we end up moving in with my mom and this and that. And like, that seems crazy. But if you, you and your spouse have had that conversation and you're both willing to make that sacrifice, that's doable. Yep. And if it means you're able to pay your employees, consider like continue on your growth path, access funding when everyone else couldn't, yep. that's amazing. Um, but you may not have that limit and that's okay too. So knowing what that boundary is, having those conversations in advance, I think is so critical. And then also, um, I think the other one is, I think just realizing that you, you have to have some sort of a control around where you, where you leave the work side and, and what affects the personal side. So so if something's not working, like how quickly do you call it quits or how, mm -hmm. how much of it do you bring into your personal life? Like, do you suddenly put things on your personal credit card, which apparently happens a lot? Or yeah. um, do you do you borrow money from your spouse or your spouse's family, which I've also seen happen? Yeah. And it seems like the easiest thing at the time because you're like, well, what's the alternative? Like I shut down or I don't pay my employees or I don't pay my vendors. And that's like so scary. But mm -hmm at the end of the day, like your family is forever and your business, you can recover from in different ways. Um, yeah, I think those are really important. Also just looking at non-dilutive funding sources. I always say like yeah. people are, especially in tech are so focused on venture funding and thinking that's honestly the first step to starting a business is getting yeah. venture funding. Yeah. Actually, I'm going to just kind of rip on two points you mm -hmm. made is that was a conversation that Joel and I had accidentally. We, right when we started SOS, there were a few things I was not willing to do. I was like, we're never ever 
ever going to be in a position where we're not in this house yeah. and just because we had little kids and I didn't mind uh, we bootstrapped our business so I didn't mind being lean mm-hmm. that came in uh, personally and that came in handy during the pandemic like we cut right back again it was just like startup days and it was not even a problem but because I knew that on my boundary of this this home is not going to be um, affected it was like well that's small potatoes for me then and we were really clear about what we were willing to do and not do and and talked about that early on um so then it surprised me that a lot of founders don't have that conversation because yeah people do have different risk tolerances and different values some people value things it makes them feel safe it makes them feel good and some people don't so then yeah to your Mm -hmm. point when two founders have two different values well why is it so easy for me to eat kd and this other person you know, needs more of a salary or wants dividends paid out sooner um, when I'm really willing to reinvest that into the business. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other point about the venture capital, I don't know if this is, I, I might be way off base. I think it's like sharks, shark tank. Like everybody thinks that's the only way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really, I get frustrated with that because honestly, in my, my opinion, uh, when businesses if businesses don't have customers, they can't establish where they have product market fit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means going into it with a very minimum viable product. Go in with something small, something that you can sell, and then listen to your client. I find it a little bit aud- like audacious, I don't know if that's the right word, that people would ask for other people's money without those validations in place. Mm-hmm. I know it happens. I know people have raised money off of a pitch deck and nothing actually physical. Um, and that's that's fine. but. It's not the only way, and if you treat your customers as well as you treat an investor that handed you one hundred fifty thousand um, dollars, you could you'd be amazed at how much you can learn. So, talking to your client and figuring out, and treating them and valuing them like an investor, like a hotshot VC, uh, I think is the quickest way to having uh, a really great product and a really strong business. Because getting in the habit of having that feedback loop in place and going to your customer first and going to your customer first whenever you want to change or pivot or upgrade you're going to have that habit it's mm-hmm. going to be ingrained in you and your business and your culture to to do those things so um that actually kind of goes into question number five so pros and cons of bootstrapping versus taking on equity investment mm-hmm. or working with a bank um that that to me is the pro of of mm-hmm. not taking on um equity investment i think if you um the pro of taking equity investment is you can get, um, that's a way to fill in a gap in a leadership team. If you have two CEOs and you need a CFO, mm-hmm. or if you are very technical and you need a marketing person, somebody who's been in your space um, 10 years earlier and knows knows the way and knows the connections and has those connections and believes in you enough to cut you a check and support you as you grow, sometimes the investors want to be hands-off and they just come to the board meeting and that's it. But if you can find smart money that'll get you to the next level, it's more than worth exploring whether you're willing to give a piece of, of the pie away. Um, I don't know. I don't know how rare that is or how common that is. Um, I'd be interesting to hear if anybody listening to this um, has statistic on how many investors like to be kind of getting their hands dirty. But um, and then we're working with a bank. Um, there's going to be times when you're growing that you need to supplement your cash flow. And so that's obviously the, the benefit of, of having a bank um, support you. Um, that being said, there is almost always going to be some sort of personal guarantee. And if that causes you to leave sleep at night, you might want to choose a different option. I know 
putting up your home as collateral uh, can be very, very daunting. And um, as, as far as I'm aware, it's, it's a rare situation where somebody doesn't have to, a founder doesn't have to do that um, uh, to get some sort of help from the bank. So that would be the pros and cons there. Um, what about you on the personal side? What do you, what would you say are the pros and cons of each of those? Yeah, I've seen um, business owners do both. And I think some businesses obviously are more like lend themselves better to bootstrapping. So it's not so much like a, like a judgment, right? Mm -hmm. But I do think there's, I've seen some really cool businesses start. And I remember learning this when I was in university where the professor, it was like a case. And he basically the conclusion of the case was that the smartest entrepreneur is the one that can, um, take on the like the least risk like risk his own stuff the least sure. and so it was a case of this guy how he had basically funded his company without risking his own stuff and gotten somebody to risk their reputation someone else to risk their their product or whatever and all the stuff where he didn't have to take on any risk and that's like obviously it's tough to stru structure but that's kind of the the idea to envision is that if you can risk rest less of your stuff that's great but then just also remember with the people that are giving you things like what are the expectations right, right. And I always think like VCs should, you often hear like they're investing in a, in a couple of founders and they don't really care what the product is. Mm -hmm. And I always think that's crazy. And then fine, if that's the case, then like, what are you really getting to know about these founders? Like that they can put together a great pitch deck or are you getting to know, like, I would want to know their money story. I would want to know how yeah. they respond to, um, you know, a lack of money at any given point. I would want to know if they've got debt. I would want to know what the expectations are of their lifestyles. Yeah. Um, so you hear all of that kind of stuff. And then I also have seen entrepreneurs where they've, you know, just because they simply just didn't have any money, but they were really passionate about an idea. We're able to get like so many people on board as part of a team, all working together where no one was really being paid, or maybe one person was being paid as part of a grant or something. And they were able to move so far and really, yes, everyone risked some time, but it wasn't a huge financial risk. And they were able to get to at least a place of a minimum viable product and like to be able to show it and to be able to bring on new clients. So you can get creative in those ways too. I think our government is being really generous in a lot of ways right now. And that's cool. It's exciting. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I guess like there's no, there's no wrong answer, but that just taking on equity and investment should be done in a way that's considering like what you're going to get back for it, what you're losing from it. I also remember hearing something that I, that really resonated with me about somebody who, um, I think he was saying like the, when you think of how equity is split and our goal is always to keep the most we can for ourselves, yeah. but that that's sometimes looked at as a, a, a weakness in a business because mm -hmm. it's somebody is saying somebody is is um, choosing the fact that they had the idea to certify that they're the best person to run the business. Mm -hmm. um, when really, like, if you have to give up like 20% of your equity and bring on somebody who's like an all-star at this and they're willing to help you with that and like with less money upfront, like, why wouldn't you do that? Wouldn't that just get you to your goal faster? And like, what does it mean that you have to have so much? And the idea is that like 30% of a lot of money is a lot more than like 80% of barely anything, right? So I was gonna say, yeah, yeah, exactly. I've heard that quote before that, yeah, 25% of nothing is still nothing. And 5% mm -hmm. of a, a multi-million dollar business is really great. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's how much you believe in it. And I think at some point too, when you um, d divorce yourself from your brand, a lot of startups look at, you know, it's often called like your baby, your business is your baby. Um, but really it's just a business. And if you are so wrapped up in your brand that you can't, we had to have this conversation at what point does a CEO or a founder step back and let mm -hmm. somebody else run it because they've recognized that this is the person that can take it to the next level. Um, if 
you're not really willing to do that, then there's not a lot of yeah. growth that can happen there. Yeah. yeah, I totally agree. Well, I think that's a good place to mm -hmm. wrap it up. Um, thank you so much for sharing your insights. Uh, anybody who's listening, please check out Altruism online. I've got you on LinkedIn. The website's amazing. What are your social handles, your other ones? Um, I believe Instagram is at altru underscore wisdom. Um, and that's our most popular one, I'd say right now. We're also on LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, I think it's just at, at Ultra Wisdom. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's where I found it. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you for your time. And uh, if anybody who needs to talk about corporate or personal finance, feel free to email or DM either of us. Thanks so much for having me. This was great.